This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Bloomberg News Mark Bergen discusses his book, Like, Comment, Subscribe. He speaks about the creation and growth of YouTube and how it has changed our society. This uh, media platform that's really, despite its size and influence, just not had the same level of attention as some of its peers. And I thought within that story that you have plenty of fascinating characters on YouTube and then inside the company you have this whiplash of going from the underdog uh, to sort of seen as big tech uh, and seen as something that for associated with a lot of uh, problems in democracy. He's interviewed by political technology policy reporter Rebecca Kern. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, Mark. It's good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it was a really fun read, and I kind of wanted to just jump into the conversation. I have a lot of, lot of questions. Um, but just to start off, I wanted to just see if you can explain kind of what, um, what inspired you to write the book. Obviously, you've written on Google and YouTube for years. Um, but like, what led you to, to decide this is something I need to write a, a whole book about? So I have been covering Google since 2015, and, and then it became Alphabet. And, and really, it's, it's an expanding uh, business conglomerate and empire. Uh, and during that time, YouTube, uh, its, its media division, became increasingly important for the company's bottom line. Uh, it also became uh, increasingly important for the company's political hurdles uh, and some of their major business problems uh, in the past seven years. And so during that time, I was reporting on um, a lot of the major crises that, that YouTube and its parent company dealt with, uh, sort of what, fire after fire. And what I saw was a really fascinating, uh, in a short period of time, this whiplash where you have these employees at, the, at, at Google and YouTube who see themselves as uh, an underdog to traditional media, to traditional corporate world and, and Hollywood. Uh, and then within a few short years, the Google and YouTube is viewed almost equivalent to big tobacco. Uh, and you've seen the social media backlash. Uh, Google's faced uh, intense amount of uh, unprecedented political scrutiny I thought this was a fascinating story about this uh, media platform that's really, despite its size and influence, just not had the same level of attention as some of its peers. And I thought within that story that you have plenty of fascinating characters on YouTube and then inside the company you have this whiplash of going from the underdog uh, to sort of seen as big tech. 
uh, and seen as something that for associated with a lot of uh, problems in democracy. Right. Yeah. And I'm curious who you were able to speak with at the company. I mean, who you who they gave you access to and how you got all this inside baseball information for for the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I came to the company since since day one that I was writing this. That this was a I wanted it to be a definitive, uh, genuine, and accurate depiction of the company's operations, what it's gone through, uh, I and and how it's responded. And I, I think my my case to them was, you know, YouTube is uniquely situated in the, the problems they face, uh, in, in part because. They have this this major creator economy. You know, they're the only platform for a very long time mm-hmm. that paid creators, paid broadcasters, and so they have this gigantic financial engine that has ramifications for people's professional lives. Um, and and that's I think just characterize a lot of the challenges they went through. So I spoke to about a dozen folks, sort of officially with the company. Um, this is ranging from everyone on you know marketing roles to engineering to product up to the number two at the company. In my additional reporting, I spoke to over 100 people that have either worked there or had work in the past um, in a variety of roles, basically talking to, to anyone who was willing to, to share their time and their story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what I found was interesting is you cited a Google employee who said, um, they viewed YouTube as the uh, video scaffolding of the internet, um, and, and that also it is the number two search engine behind Google. And I just think that was kind of su- surprising information for me. Can you kind of share kind of how that you're talking about the underdog, you know, aspect? I don't know how how widely known that YouTube is is a search engine itself, even. That was one of the driving forces behind why Google scooped it up. Yeah. Uh, it was it was early in YouTube's uh, life, so it was 18 months after it started in October of 2006. Google agrees to buy YouTube for uh, 1.6 billion dollars, which at the time was just uh, just an enormous sticker shock for the financial world, for the media world, for people inside Google. Uh, certainly, you know, YouTube by then had had already had sort of enormous success finding an audience um, with viewers. It had already started to become part of the wider culture, culture, pop culture firmament. And and but Google really saw YouTube as uh, a fantastic search property, and 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 in that way as as a threat in the sense that you know Google is is wants to, to become the best and premier search engine to remain on the internet uh, it saw YouTube people were going to YouTube to look for um, just you know entertaining clips to pass the time and and idle entertainment as well as how-to videos and seeking information in the same way that in commercial queries the same way they would go to Google that hasn't changed and I mean it, YouTube has only become stronger and deeper as a search platform, right? It, it's sort of, we've all had this experience where it's remarkable that like any specific thing that we're looking to do, whether it's like fix, uh, you know, a small part of your car or bake a recipe, there is probably a YouTube video out there that explains how to do it. Uh, it means that there's someone who's taken the time to upload that video and potentially made money from it. Um, it it's just the, the breadth of of the platform is really hard to uh, come to terms with. Right. And and it's it's birthed the creator economy. Um, so and you've alluded to that. But can you kind of explain 
the significance of that and how it's really set the stage for all these other social media apps that have now started paying their creators. I'm thinking TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snap. But um, it really was the original there and, and, and how that evolved over time. Yeah, I mean, YouTube sort of invented a new form of fame. Like we, we now have online personalities who uh, are more recognizable to generations and, and teenagers and, and kids and people in their 20s than Hollywood A-listers. Uh, and that has been the case maybe for, for uh, the past decade. You know, YouTube began very early, remarkably early in 2007, sharing the ad revenue from its site with uh, a small a select group of popular creators that started to expand and become professionalized relatively quickly uh, and, and then to up to a point now where where they've over two million people are on YouTube's uh, ads partner program that was actually a, a larger number a few years ago because the, the company had to call that back for a variety of reasons uh, but it's just this incredibly robust economy it has launched like new media companies uh, many careers and now you're seeing especially during the pandemic right where where um creators became a really valuable franchise for or sorry valuable vehicle uh for companies to do marketing like influencers just became you know these very popular and profoundly they have a relationship with an audience that uh just celebrities on tv and conventional media don't necessarily so we've seen twitch uh snap snapchat tiktok uh, all the meta Facebook properties, Spotify in, in particular, are all kind of hurling money at this creator class in this war for talent that's been happening. And, and I like only see it in its early stages right now. Totally. And, and going back to kind of the basis of YouTube itself, um, you referred to it as like the three-legged stool of audience, creator, and advertising. But throughout the book, you mentioned so many tensions between those three factors and how often the creator is left as the, the, the most uneven stool, even though, they, as we're referring to it, they are the, the, the basis of YouTube. They are what, what created YouTube. So could you kind of talk about some of those tensions and how they changed over time? Uh, yeah, it's a wobbly stool for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, um, you know, I mean, you'll talk to advertisers and, and they think that the creators are uh, sometimes um, coddled on the platform and and in some circumstances like given more latitude than than an advertiser uh, certainly like a more cautious conservative advertiser would want um you know the other constituency is the viewer and i think you can from my reporting shows that you can you can uh, clearly make the argument that uh, you know uh, what youtube has done for viewers is this amazing massive entertainment free entertainment and information that never existed uh, two decades before and, and we kind of take for van- take advantage of um, now, but it's also it, there's not a lot of transparency um, uh, for you as a viewer. And I'll give like one one interesting example. So the past few years, as YouTube has responded to uh, a lot of criticism, they've uh, instituted this policy called what they call borderline videos. And so these are videos that don't break their rules about hate speech or harassment. Uh, graphic violence um, and, and supporting kind of extremist positions, but they go right up to the line 
of them, and this is a, a really arbitrary line. And, and what YouTube has done is a pretty powerful tool, which is, OK, we're just not going to put those videos in our recommendation engine. Uh, so it's the traffic on those, once they're removed from the YouTube recommendation system, it really plummets, because that is a majority of, of views on videos is people being recommended footage, either just kind of autoplay, the, you know, one video jumps to the next, or that panel of, of videos on the screen if you're looking at a desktop computer. Me, as a viewer, I have no idea that this video in front of me has been deemed borderline. I have no idea this video you know, is, is potentially violating some rules or in questionable territory. And, and that, you know, that, that uh, the creators at the same time don't necessarily have that indication either. And that's sort of the, the, um, part of the reason, many, one of many reasons why the creators feel shortchanged, um, especially compared to traditional media, which is also on YouTube. Right. And and that all kind of came to a head, you talk about in the book um, in 2017 with, with the ad, adpocalypse, you call it. Um, and just that was just talking about the tensions with some violent extremist content being promoted on the platform by certain creators and that being tied to advertisers who, who do not want to obviously be associated with that content. Other examples of, you know, videos that were also viewed as offensive that ads were still running on. So could you kind of talk about maybe what led to that and, and what there were some pretty dramatic changes that happened after after that time period? Yeah, I think there are, there are a couple things going on. One is um, sort of wonky business, right? Like Google is a digital advertising company. Like it makes its majority of its money uh, putting ads in front of your search results and then putting ads across the web, either on website banners or on YouTube videos. Um, this has been a business model that has fundamentally reshaped how marketing works. And, and you know, it kind of took this, what, what traditionally was a, like a handshake agreement um, on Madison Avenue, literally. It, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a company and I want my ad to run on this TV station and this show or on this billboard, right? What YouTube did or what Google did was just upended that, and it said, "Like we can, we'll serve our ad, your ad to where it will reach the best consumer." Um, what that did was it, and, and then they will do it in an automated way. So they built this fantastically complex automated system, uh, equivalent to sort of a financial markets, that with all these exchanges and markets and reg- like basically these a lot of software to to determine when to serve you an ad that you're most likely to click on. So what happened in 2017 was. There were reporters that found that uh, some of the major household brands and names and even nonprofits were sponsoring terrorist videos, extremists, neo-Nazis, the, the type of inappropriate material that if you sat down a you know, chief marketing officer and said, you're spending money on this, they clearly uh, would not want to continue doing so. And they didn't want their names in the headlines associated with that. And, it, and this was, you know, it was a relatively small percentage of the budget, but it just demonstrated uh, how this this model had been built and built so quickly, um, and and wasn't prepared to deal with the kind of avalanche of of advertisers exiting. Right, and then after that, I mean, they did end up having to change some of their their business and digital advertising modeling, and also it led to some major. Uh, um, changes in how they moderate content, I think, as well. <laughs> this, this was also, I guess, the second point was this was the beginning early in the Trump. Uh, yeah. presidency in the era 
um, and you had you know major advertisers that were uh, much more cautious about, and and I, I'd say even venture to say like did not want to go anywhere near remotely political uh, issues and topics. And then you have YouTube and, and Google that also wanted to steer clear of of, uh, of anything kind of remotely political. They were, they were the beginnings of this accusation that the company has a bias against conservatives in the U.S. Um, so you know their their response was was pretty. Uh, I, I would say it was pretty severe. Like the the number of changes they made and, and YouTube now versus YouTube in 2017 looks profoundly different. Um, and they put in effectively like safeguards and systems to make sure that their advertising business would continue to operate. And it, and and on some level, that has worked very well. Like that, the the, the earliest numbers we have for YouTube's financials from the company is that in 2017 they made eight billion dollars. Last year they made uh, close to 29 billion in advertising. Uh, it's been phenomenal growth. And so the, at least on one metric, they have. You know, satisfied advertisers. Uh, there's like so, certainly open questions about whether or not they've satisfied regulator, regulators or concern from parents. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you name it. Right. And and speaking of the use of AI tools, they're obviously deployed in advertising. They're deployed in the recommendation systems, but also around the 2017, I think, time period, they were deploying it to automatically moderate content too. Um, because because it seemed obviously more and more content was getting on the platform and, and never saw a human review initially. So could you kind of talk about the evolution of content moderation? And, and we'll talk about YouTube Kids next as, as an example of where they really had to build it up there. Um, yeah, I mean, the content moderation, I, there's, there's a really telling anecdote in the book that uh, YouTube's early team, it, so they were, they hired a, a these early moderators directly on staff, they they call it the squad, uh, which is, stands for an acronym, and hopefully I get this right. It's like safety and and quality of users. Forgive me for not getting it exactly yeah, right, but uh, I remember squad. Yeah, it's it's detailed in the book. Um, <laughs> and and but these were like sort of the first like frontline workers of the internet, right? This was in two thousand five, two thousand six, which was when there was just beginning to have what we call user generated content. And this proliferation of material that was, to your point, um, not programmed, unfiltered, and they had teams and like wrote these rules, and and they were, I, I think, pretty adaptive given um, the fact that they were in some ways inventing this on the fly. One ex- interesting example is you know there was a um, early on this trend. On the internet, of like what, what's called thin inspiration, uh, so it's mm-hmm. women, young girls posting videos like pro-anorexia material, uh, and so there are people on YouTube's policy team early on that identified this. It's like this is a trend that we do not want on our community, right? We don't want videos promoting this, and not for com- like at this point. Keep in mind, like YouTube basically didn't have a commercial business, or it was like very nascent, um, and, and they then outlawed this. Uh, this practice, or at least set rules, rather they restricted it as far as restricting it for for younger viewers. Um, of course, these like there's a big gap in the history of, of YouTube, like like all internet platforms, between the rules that they write um, and what actually happens uh, on the, the site. And that enforcement is in, is incredibly difficult. It's very difficult in video. Like YouTube has a unique problem that Facebook and Twitter have not had. Uh, because Facebook and Twitter are largely text-based, and it's just it's the way the software works right now. 
it is far easier to analyze, uh, immediately analyze text and identify, like, if you're looking for certain keywords. It is much harder to do that in a long video. Uh, and you also have to deal with visuals uh, as well as audio. Um, so at a certain point, you know, YouTube's size began to, um, I think, just grew too large for their for the moderation team. They started to outsource this this operation uh, in in late 2017 after like this the series of, of uh, business crises and, and more increasing regulatory pressure. They they basically went out and, and hired thousands of of contract moderators um, to build up the team that they sort of still work with today. Right. Yeah, and that was really novel. I, I think what kind of inspired the more dramatic human intervention, I think you explained, was with Elsa Gate in um, the YouTube kids era. Um, if you want to kind of describe broadly what, what that means, I mean, it, it sounded like uh, adults dressing up in kind of a Comic-Con look of um, Elsa was obviously from Frozen, if someone did not know that, um, uh, and taking advantage of, you know, Key, keywords and in the tagging, but but also doing activities that kids should not be seeing. It seemed like so um, that seemed to have gotten out of control for probably too long because it sounded like YouTube Kids. There wasn't really. I mean, it was a platform, but in theory, YouTube wanted parents to be watching it with their children. But the reality was, children were watching it unsupervised. So could kind of explain the outcome of that in the end, I guess. Yeah. So uh, because of the way that that, uh, internet laws work, I mean, this is basically like, you know, the only way that that YouTube was was restricted by copyright from from day one and that it had COPPA, um, the the restriction on on like what you can, what type of targeting and and data you can collect from, from minors under 13. And for that reason, the site was very explicitly uh, well, rather, I don't know how explicit it was because it was the terms of service that, as we know on the internet, like few people actually read. But it's like this is for a site for 13 and over. Um, if you're a kid under 13, you are uh, watching with your parents. Um, and and it was 2015. There was by 2015, there was just so much abundant material on YouTube that was clearly aimed for toddlers and kids younger than 13. What the company did is they they built an app called YouTube Kids. Um, and this was their attempt to say this is sort of like to make a safe space um, for children. I think for a variety of reasons, that has not taken off. And I think the traffic on that is just minuscule compared to, to YouTube.com. Um, they were criticized pretty early on from from some outside watchdog groups for be, because they didn't do uh, they didn't curate and 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 like hand pick the videos that were going in. There was. There were videos in there that, like, certainly parents found inappropriate. Um, that became really in 2017 when there was just so much uh, of videos that were designed to get kids to watch, and enough people at YouTube decided this was like inappropriate and not something. To be honest, that they would want their children to watch. Uh, I think that was a, a, a major turning point in, in the company. And, and keep in mind, I think like they were aware that this was putting them in, close to close to, like, uncomfortable territory as far as regulation. Right. And 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 you have, you know, quotes from Susan Wojcicki, the um, CEO, saying, you know, this was not 
what it was intended to do. Um, and obviously, she dir directed the hiring of, you know, the goal was 10,000 content moderators, um, hu humans that was, moderating. Uh, that was for Google-wide. Okay, like, got yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a, one of the frustrating moments where... YouTube tends to like announce a figure like that. Ah, I was like, that uh, was a very large and then number. You, you <laughs> okay. read the fine print, and it's. I, yeah. I mean, I think it was mostly YouTube, but you know, Google yeah. also has teams that moderate. Yeah. Google Search and Google Images and and so on. So right. yeah, yeah. But forgive me for that. Oh uh, no, no. Thanks for clarifying that. But ultimately, like, it puts a lot of the burden on these content moderators who are our contractors. And I think maybe people aren't aware they they don't get the big salaries and benefits of Google and YouTube employees, and often work in uh, different parts of the world. Could you kind of talk about the the difficulties this this put on these individuals, and and kind of the blowback that inadvertently happened in the end with that? Yeah, I mean, there is, it is, to your point, like a lot of them are, are contracted out um, so to, to vendors that, that, that Google hires rather than being uh, full-time uh, YouTube employees. The company says that the reason they, they do that is because they just want to hire people very quickly, um, right, yeah. which is, uh, in a sense, it's, it's accurate that, that like the way that you know, YouTube tends to hire people um, takes take some time for their hiring. Uh, so there, I mean, for one, you know, certain types of, of content, and I've talked to people who had these jobs, right? Their job was to, uh, YouTube calls it VE, violent extremism. Like, um, this is uh, some of the most graphic violence, and a lot of it is, you know, YouTube's uh, goal here is to build software that can detect all this without any human intervention. Um, but there are things that, that obviously, like, fall through the cracks. There are... Um, Really, just strange calls that that a machine can't detect when they're not someone's. You know, there was there was a it's a macabre anecdote, but there was something in the in the story about um, a moderator I spoke to who watched this video and it looked like a beheading video, but it ended up someone was like using a toothbrush instead of a knife, and so like that technically doesn't violate the rules, but um, it, it is traumatic. The the videos about child exploitation is another area where for regulatory reasons and and I think just the company obviously does not want that material on its site, but there are people that have to moderate it if if it's not been flagged by automated systems. And and you know, YouTube has built up the most advanced system for um automating and 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 moderating and and they the stat they share is something on, on the order of more than 90% of of videos that break the rules are taken down by its uh, software system rather than than moderators but it's still you're right it, it relies on moderators um, who are trying to understand rule books that the company writes um, basically trying to train machines to operate a particular way uh, and many of them have fairly traumatic jobs. Right. I think one of the most um, significant examples of violent content that made it onto the platform was Christ, the Christchurch shooting um, in 2019. And even in the book, uh, Neil Mohan, their content um, lead of content, was saying that that the the tragedy itself uh, was almost designed for the purpose of going viral. Um, because while it may have been uploaded initially on Facebook, um, clips of it were reshared on YouTube constantly and taken down. And, and that was a, f a big battle to get control of that. How would you say they've managed 
since then, I mean, it's just a constant whack-a-mole battle. It seems not just YouTube. All these platforms face kind of that same challenge. Uh, I mean, tragically, we have a have another example more recent to, to right, sort of yeah. demonstrate the Buffalo shooting, right, uh, which operated um, in like bleak, uh, you know, almost a similar sort of manifesto inspiration uh, of an avowed white supremacist. Um, from my understanding, like YouTube did not they they, I, they did have uh, people re-uploading that footage. Um, I think there was uh, less in less volume right. and I think the company is much more prepared now right um, yeah this is just a like I, I think to be honest like it's it's we can kind of accuse them of being naive but but certainly no one when they started the company expected uh, someone to live stream uh, their mass shooting it, yeah. it's just it, in in some ways it's unfathomable um, and and that was I think what's really compelling and uh, about the book is that it, it is a company that's dealt with the darkest parts of, of humanity. Right. Yeah, I know exactly. And I mean, I, I do feel like the founders who you talk about, and we haven't really discussed really the founders. So kind of talk about why, what their intent of the of the platform was. And, and obviously they are no longer with the platform. So it seems to have gone in a different direction with advertising. But but did seem like the intent was just to share videos among family and friends and, and a pretty, you know, maybe naive, but, you know, obviously a good intent for good. Um, obviously, when it gets larger, it's less in control. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more about the founders and their personalities. And it seemed like Chris was the longest one who stuck with the company. Oh, Chad? Chad, Hurley. Chad, yeah, yeah, Chad Hurley, yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the, there were three. They had all worked at PayPal before is where they met. Um, and this was, I, I mean, this was a time in the Internet of uh, the dawn of, uh, like, Web, web 2.0. Um, and so there were Flickr, MySpace. Um, you know, this was like my, YouTube's early success was was uh, really dependent on, on MySpace. They kind of, like, wrote MySpace vir- virality. It's hard to believe then. Uh, now, but um, Facebook was was founded a few months b- before YouTube, and and yet yeah, the, the the central problem was that you know video sharing, video file sharing on the internet was cumbersome, expensive, uh, and they decided to that there would be an, a, an interesting business opportunity uh, to solve that. And and to their credit, they you know they they did develop a, an incredibly uh, simple and easy to use. Site like I think that's a major reason why YouTube uh, beat out a lot of its competitors. Um, yeah, my, my sense from talking and I spoke to one of the founders and and I've t- like talked to a lot of people who knew them and worked with them at the time. Um, it, they they it's it's interesting like um, they're not as well known. Uh, so the the third founder Jawad Karim left before Google acquired them. Steve Chen and Chad Hurley are sort of were like the co leaders of YouTube at the time. They both were gone by 2010. Uh, they're not like obviously Zuckerberg or, or Jack mm-hmm. Dorsey at Twitter. Right. These uh, entrepreneurs that have had like a very uh, some at sometimes like, tight uh, control and, and vision, um, and, and like the company sort of see and, and certainly in, in Facebook's now Meta's case, like it is a company run by by one person. Right. Um, uh, I, I mean, I mean, and you know, the YouTube founders, I like certainly had some. Uh, probably Google took it in com- directions that it, they didn't love, but uh, my sense is they were like 
a part of uh, uh, an era of the of the internet where you're like solving uh, a consumer need, which they did. Um, they it was sort of like described as kind of this wild roller coaster ride, right? Like as soon as they joined Google, they're they're shipped around the world to open YouTube offices in in Germany and Russia and and in Japan and and Korea, and it's um, it was this time of uh, euphoria. Someone in the book calls it the Internet of Awesome, right? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and then we lead into the Arab Spring, which when <laughs> yeah. when, when we like thought of social media um, as uh, and it was a, a revolutionary force, a platform for. Um, uh, documenting and, and witnessing uh, real, actual revolutions and, and upheaval uh, that traditional media, in, in a way that traditional media just, and, and in countries with state-run media, like that's where YouTube is, a, is an incredibly powerful force. Right. And, and talk about kind of the leadership style under Susan Wojcicki, one of the few female CEOs in the tech world and the influence yeah. she's had. I mean, she's been there eight years. Since 2014, um, seen some, you know, a lot of changes, but but still there. And and I don't know if you have any sense how long she's planning to stay, but I'm curious how that's gone. Uh, I don't have a sense. Yeah. Um, I've heard varying. I could t- I'll tell you the, the varying stories I've heard it in the sense that, like, uh, on one extreme, people wonder. Uh, it's a, it's a why she's still in that job. I mean, it, it, she so she Google was founded in her garage. She is like tight with the founders of Google, who have um, by now left the company. They're they're still a majority majority shareholders, um, but they're effectively retired. And but they they still have influence and sway. So she's in, in an inner circle of a company that has basically been run by by inner circles. Um, a YouTube CEO is a very difficult job. Like you have a lot of different constituencies, you have to keep happy. Um, there was a, they've improved this, but there was a point in time when, um, sort of during some of the crises, YouTubers found it. You know, YouTubers, it's sort of a um, a rite of passage that a YouTuber makes a video uh, griping about YouTube, uh, which is totally <laughs> fair and. But I'll, some YouTubers found, uh, oh, we could gripe about the, the the CEO of this company and like, oh, she's a woman and oh, she's a Jewish woman. Like we can make uh, harassing, we can make videos like that were, I, I think, borderline harassment and, and, and anti-Semitic, uh, certainly ones that, that were not hard for me to find. Um, so it is a difficult job. That being said, I've also heard the argument that is, uh, you know, that she has... You, you know, YouTube as a as a business has been growing fairly well the past five years. Um, they certainly have regulatory challenges, but they're not Facebook. Um, they Google's advertising business effectively like runs, keeps the uh, does a lot of the keeps the fuel in that fire. Um, so I, I don't. I mean, I think her record um, is certainly like Wall Street is very happy with the direction that she's taken. Uh, the platform. Um, there, there are s- critics that will point out uh, many blind spots, and I think people inside the company uh, have admitted to me that that they moved late on on so many issues. Right, and I'm thinking of you're speaking of some of the sexism she personally faced, but within the company there were allegations of sexual misconduct um, among staffers, among leadership and staffers, led to a November 2018 walkout. Um, 20,000 staff across um, the company around the world participated. 
um, led by Claire Stapleton, who you, you interviewed and spoke with pretty, it seemed like she was a big player in the book. So, and they, and she even brought the concerns to, to Susan herself. So, um, but Claire's no longer there. So I'm wondering, like, how receptive you think um, YouTube has been to these concerns raised about sexism um, among employees? Um, yeah, I, I, so you mentioned that the Claire Stapleton was a, a major character in the book. She's, uh, like, had this fascinating role at YouTube and, and, and at Google. Um, I think that that, so the, the, what I mentioned in the reporting in the book is, in, in particular, was around um, the discrepancies in salaries for female right. uh, employees at YouTube and, and, and people of color. Um I don't. I mean, like the Google reports those figures and still face criticism from you know. There's now an Alphabet Workers Union uh, that uh, like regularly criticizes the company for that. Uh, there hasn't been any, to my knowledge, like any reporting on um, uh, harassment claims uh, specifically at, at YouTube it's involving its executives. There's certainly like it was part of the walkout. Um, some of the like there were certainly YouTube employees there, and and half the actual walkout organizers were worked at YouTube, and so I think they were in part. It's just a it's a part of Google that is more attuned to pop culture and to news, just by virtue of the fact that it is a gigantic media platform. Right. Exactly. Um, well, moving forward, another big issue that the platform continues to struggle with is the spread of misinformation. Um, we look back to 2020 and the spread of the big lie after the election results and the eventual um, banning of Donald Trump from the platform. But heading into the midterms and, and next year, how do, how do you foresee the platform preparing um, to address misinformation, um, do you see many changes in their twenty midterm twenty two plan that was announced the other week? Uh, so to be clear, Trump is not banned per se, but he's actually indefinitely okay, suspended. Yeah, indefinitely from, suspended. From, yes, uh, I guess and, so, and, yeah. and, and YouTube has said um, uh, they w- consider reinstating uh, once they, they feel like the threat of violence has subsided, uh, which is an incredibly vague statement. Right. But uh, my sense is that they, uh, I. I in, I'd be shocked if they moved before Facebook, which has uh, given uh, similar treatment to, to Trump. Um, I, I, th- I mean, YouTube has made – this is an area where they've made some, some pretty dramatic changes in, in the sense that this, this type of policy around election misinformation didn't exist a few years ago. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, this is not in the book, but I think the hopefully the sentiment it gets across. Like there are people I talk to who worked at YouTube who disagree with that policy – in part, you know, YouTube is a global platform, and their argument was when there's a contested election in Venezuela, like where do we, where do we as an American company land on this? Um, I think that's a uh, that argument falls apart a little bit in the sense that like the stakes of of a of a, of a U.S. election are 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 different, and in the idea being like if why operate in a country like Venezuela unless you're prepared to make that decision, but. Um, I, that is, I think, a capture something about how the company thinks, right? Like, they moved pretty reluctantly to do this. Um, what they haven't stated are rules um, around, you know, you can't make videos 
uh, giving false claims about how to vote. You can't say the vote is the elections on on Wednesday when it's actually on Tuesday. Right. You can't um, make threats of violence around. Uh, and, and, and now after uh, certainly after Jan Jan six and, and before then, but but they've ramped up the the um, pay more attention to this since after January sixth. Like there are rules about. Um, you know, saying that the 2020 election is rigged. And, and there was a recent example where um, I believe Kerry Lake is the name of the elected official, or sorry, the one who's running for office in Arizona. Right. Um, and she was on a high-profile YouTuber named Stephen Crowder, conservative pundit and commentator, uh, over 6 million subscribers, has um, been a controversial and lightning rod on the, on the platform. He had her on... You know, it's sort of similar to a news show. It's a he's a he's a podcaster or talk radio um, host, and and she was discussing uh, the election and and suggest and said it right out that it was um, it was rigged, and that video was removed, and then the account was suspended. Uh, something that the, the YouTube would not have done. I think they're they are a few years ago. I think going into the the upcoming midterms, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, where they draw the line as far as who is, you know, would that if she had said the same thing on Fox News, would they have treated that video right. differently? Um, and and I I think so. I think YouTube is, has um, pretty reluctantly drawn lines where it'll what they call authoritative channels, and so. You know, uh, C-SPAN's videos on YouTube, right? Like um, CNN, uh, these sort of established media companies uh, are higher in search rankings. Um, are they're trying to promote them more? Uh, to uh, you saw this in the, during the election, where um, there were a couple pro-Trump networks, Newsmax, uh, One American News, that had fairly big audiences on YouTube and. And YouTube would say at the time, listen, we are not putting any of their videos in our recommendation system. Like, viewers are finding this on their own. They're going out and searching for it. You know, uh, oddly, like, um, a lot of the, maybe not oddly, but a lot of those videos went went viral on Facebook or Gab, um, a right-wing social network, uh, not on YouTube itself. So that, their their approach is they're fine tweak, like tweaking the rules and then doing as much as uh, doing what they say they they as much as they can um, around like downranking uh, any channels that that would put them into I think uh, difficulty around um, election misinformation. But it, it it is an incredibly naughty problem for them that I don't think they've solved and, and maybe can't. Right. No, I think it seems pretty very challenging. But um, another area is how they work in other countries. So in Russia. And in India or other environments where there there is rules on certain speech and what you're allowed to say. And interestingly, after the beginning of the war in Ukraine, it's YouTube remains one of the few platforms allowed there um, in Russia. So uh, they, you know, Russia's kicked out a lot of the other platforms for not following their rules. But so, could you talk about kind of the? The dance, the song and dance YouTube does in other countries that don't have as strong of um, or an al- as wide of an allowance of, of free speech as the U.S. does. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really fascinating. I, that is uh, probably um, maybe the com- company's biggest challenge right now and not getting enough attention. Um, India is a really fascinating example. It's YouTube's biggest market. The right. stat they've shared... Most recently, uh, and that was, I think, from 2020, 
is 325 monthly users. Uh, so that's the equivalent of the entire United States that's, that's on, on YouTube. 325 million? Right. Yeah, yeah. Month, monthly. And, and yeah. I'm sure the number is bigger. Um, yeah. in, in part because TikTok is banned on YouTube. Or sorry, TikTok is banned in India. Right. Um, and so, you know, they've uh, been paying more attention to, to misinformation, uh, to hate speech, to harassment. It, it is complicated. India has dozens of languages. And, and caste is, uh, you know, not YouTube has recently written caste into uh, their harassment policies, but it's, it's difficult to moderate. Um, but at the same time, you have the, the, the government, uh, the BJP in India, that has been insisting that videos come down for violating uh, misinformation or extremism rules. Some videos um, certainly fit this. Uh, others are appear to be uh, just critical of the government. And so this is something that, that YouTube has dealt with a lot in the past, right? They're from almost day one in, in uh, outside the U.S., right? Like they were, they've been banned in Pakistan. They were banned in, in, uh, briefly in Thailand and Turkey, like countries where it felt like videos were being critical of, of in, in Thailand's case, the king, the ruling party, the government. Um, YouTube has, for a long time, took pride in standing up to these countries. I think in, in countries like India now, because it's so YouTube is so big, they have so much invested in, in so much at stake there, I have a hard time seeing them retreat. Uh, right. I mean, Russia is another interesting example. Like, they have taken down state media in Russia after the war in Ukraine. Um, and I was m- one of many people that sort of fully expected Russia to block YouTube, and it has not yet. Um, I think in part because YouTube is just so dominant there and, and part of the mainstream culture and, and entertainment complex that, that I it seems to be one of the major reasons why it continues to operate. They, they've, they're, no, they're no longer running ads. They're ads business in Russia. Um, but and you know YouTube will will point out often and I think fairly that the opposition in Russia has a big presence there and right. and that is a space where um, in, in countries with uh, either state control of media or something equivalent YouTube can be a powerful opposition a powerful platform for for um, opposition. Yeah, you're saying Navalny's account is one of the largest, in fact, his followers. So, yes, I mean, I that seems to be another reason why it's so widely used in Russia at this time. But um, Yeah, dash yeah. cams are also really popular. Like, uh, a lot of cars in, in Russia have dash cams, and so you have, like, some of the most entertaining uh, dash cam footage coming out of it. <laughs> and there are big, there are big yeah. online personalities That's there, funny. like... Yeah. You know, YouTube remains, despite all, like, it, it, it certainly has everything under the sun, but, mm-hmm. but you know, there is, like, music, gaming, beauty, like, those mm-hmm. categories are, are gigantic. Right. Um, another area I wanted to talk about was, you know, what Jiski says in the book, what are, one of our biggest fears is regulation. And it really wasn't until September 2019 they saw their biggest fine um, from the FTC, $170 million, which really isn't that much for a YouTube, but the largest FTC has fined to date um, for um, violating the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act. Could you talk about the significance of that and the ramifications? I mean, one significance is it's 
really been to to date like the only um, U.S. Uh, regulator to crack down on on big tech uh, right. in, in a meaningful way. And Congress hasn't hasn't uh, passed anything so far, um, and despite many proposals, um, I mean, I think we've seen that at the state level around privacy and. Um, but but this was uh, this had a significant uh, immediate effect on on YouTube, um, and and so, like one of that is something that viewers can see, right? If so, if you go on any right now, if you like go a nursery rhyme channel or um, any like popular kids channel, you're not going to see comments. Uh, they've been disabled. Um, what's happening in the background is YouTube is no longer running. It's higher priced uh, targeted behavioral ads based on like the the you know our surfing or user data. Um, on those channels, and and that has, as a consequence, like it, it impacted the the creators that were on there. I think you know, from what I understand, they, that was sort of balanced out by that happened, and YouTube made that change in early 2020, and then a few months later, it's the pandemic, and since the pandemic, traffic, especially on kids' videos, has just taken off and skyrocketed, and so you, you almost talk to like some YouTube people who are in like the family and kids space and like that sort of even out in, in, in some ways. Um, they they paid a lot more attention to like they've actually assigned more people to kind of curate YouTube kids as a safe space, trying to be more attuned to quality. I mean, some of it's a little bit comical. Like, you know, YouTube is, is said they're going to try to program for uh, subjective traits like humility and compassion uh, in, in videos that, that show this. And, and you know, more recently, they've, they've said they're gonna, um, they will be more reluctant to run advertising on YouTube, on YouTube videos that are overtly commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been, you know, another part of FTC, there have been complaints that um, some really popular YouTube kids' videos and channels are, are effectively, like, 15, 20-minute-long commercials. They're, mm-hmm. they're unboxing with a toy. They're playing with a toy. This is a space where on, on con- conventional TV, the FCC actually has a lot of rules in place about, you know, you have to mix in a certain amount of educational programming um, for every for all, all the ads and, and, like, non-educational programming. You have to add the, like, commercial timing is, is limited, like, product placement. There are rules around that for kids' programming. When YouTube came around, there were none of these rules. And, and another big area is um, uh, rules on child labor laws and kid actors. And that's still unregulated on YouTube, right? There, there are no laws that say that, that, a, that a child has to be restricted the number of hours that they can be working shooting YouTube videos. Yeah, and there's so many big child stars on YouTube. So is that ever going to be an issue that, like, a regular is going to watch for? Uh, my, I think there are there's certainly advocates who are pushing for yeah. for the equivalent um, of the, the the laws in California on on YouTube. Um, I think enforcement's difficult um, in, in in some way, right? Like you, it's certainly possible, but but you know, YouTube I think would would obviously say we have no idea. Like if this is this person in the video twelve or thirteen, mm. right? Like. Um, uh, you know, and, and I think they struggle with this certainly during during some of the the low points of the moment, right? Like where you had footage of uh, this was a few years ago, during, where but you know some of the there was this really popular trend of of on YouTube of like people playing pranks, and sometimes it was like pranking kids and like parents pranking kids, and and you know one video of like a father pranking his his daughters could be entertaining, but if that person's not the actual 
parent, it, it starts to look a little different, right? And YouTube has no way of knowing who the parents are, right? it, certainly um, across millions of videos. Right. Um, so, uh, but I, I think those are – California now has, has an, an, an additional law around uh, uh, children's privacy, which is, I think, where you're going to see, at least on the advertising business, uh, probably a, a lot more push for um, regulation. How about, like, you know, in general, how do you foresee Congress regulating YouTube and, and the large tech platforms? I think one of the biggest bills we're seeing is a uh, big – antitrust reform from Senator Amy Klobuchar and Senators Chuck Grassley. Um, still not, you know, made it to the Senate floor yet. Lots of negotiations. But but Google would be captured under that, under that bill if it were to become law. Are there other, you know, what do you foresee on, on the regulatory front in the U.S. for, for YouTube and Google? Uh, I mean, certainly anything that changes Section 230 has implications for YouTube. Um, right. You know, another big area that is um, much more YouTube-specific is comp- copyright okay. law. Um, and so in Europe, um, and I'm not an expert on, on, on this at all, but uh, Article 17 was the, the rule around copyright. And this was, you know, I had talked to someone at, at YouTube that was uh, this was initially being, I think, proposed around 2019. And, and they said, you know, you don't really appreciate how much of our time and leadership meetings was spent dealing with this copyright law, um, it would have, in the way it was originally written, uh, at least according to, to people at YouTube, uh, dramatically changed the way that they do rights management um, and made them uh, made the platform liable for any YouTuber that um, violated uh, copyright laws. Uh, they, so they, they not only did lobbying, and, and Google is a, is a powerful uh, and fairly effective lobbying shop, um, they they not only lobbied about that, but they actually encouraged YouTubers to make videos uh, in Europe uh, against the measure. Right? They started like an online campaign. They effectively mobilized their influencers to influence policy, um, which was effective in the sense that like, the, what a judge uh, ruled in Europe uh, that would not like YouTube would not be ultimately li- liable um, for copyright. I know I believe there there have been uh, proposals in the U.S to um, change copyright law. You know, that case in Europe was brought by a, a record um, a music industry uh, executive or person that, that claimed that, that, that YouTube was kind of uh, flagrantly using their, their material without royalties. Uh, that has been a consistent complaint from the music industry for a long time, um, that YouTube was basically, like, making money off their backs. Hmm. Well, and then we have seen California leading, though. Um, they have their own privacy law. We have failed to, the federal government has failed to push forward or advance a federal privacy law, at least right now. There is a bill moving, but running out of time this Congress. So um, California also recently, their their Senate and their Assembly advanced this UK, it's model after the UK's age-appropriate design law. Um, which would just basically require tech companies to to design their products with with children in mind and safety and privacy issues in mind. Uh, obviously, um, I think under under eighteen too, right? Is yeah, the, I mean yeah. it extends it beyond what we have yeah. now as thirteen and under is the is the federal law, and and yeah. so this would just be in California though. But I'm just kind of curious, like how they're, how a YouTube would have to prepare for that. In, a, in essence, they're complying in the U.K., but 
but this would be a big deal if it have to comply here, I guess. Yeah, I think there, there's one, you know, their lawyers are going to be busy for sure. Right. Um, there's a lot of more compliance. Uh, I, I think, you know, what uh, my understanding of the bill is pretty limited, but like it would certainly restrict the way that their advertising business operates. And now for that age group of, of 13 to 18, right? It's, it's a big uh, which group, is, yeah. Yeah, it's a big group. It is, it is certainly, you know, there was a Pew study that came out a few weeks ago about teenagers in the U.S. and their usage of, of social media. Uh, and the, the, the highest ranking as far as what apps do you use constantly, like yeah. constantly, not just daily. It was YouTube by, yeah. uh, was, was a leader. So it, it is a, like YouTube is the first primary screen, sort of the television for that generation. Um, I think YouTube is adjusting their business in, in a similar way as who had they been adjusting to the changes that Apple has made. Um, so Apple, just be, be really brief, is like restricted um, cookies, advertising cookies, and uh, third-party targeting on iPhones. Um, and that has like undercut a substantial business for uh, social media, for Facebook, for Snapchat, um, and, and for YouTube, which uh, made a fair amount of money by like getting advertisers uh, in, in front of videos on iPhones and where they could say, you know, not only I... I know where this iPhone is, but I know this iPhone user has watched these particular videos before, clicked on this ad before, right? I, I have a lot more data. Um, so without that data, the, their advertising business suffers. Um, so what, one thing they've been doing to prepare for that is, is some machine assist learning systems to kind of replicate that targeting without collecting the data. They're leaning in a lot on commerce, um, as a business, so trying to get YouTubers to sell things over the platform, uh, which creators have been doing on their own, um, but now YouTube is basically building in systems that take commissions. Um, that, I think, has been in place uh, in part because of regulation and in part because of uh, what Apple's been doing. Um, and I, I think you'll see a, a lot more of that. I think YouTube was hoping to to expand its business to, to rely less on, on advertising for those reasons. Right. Um, well, Mark, I think we've hit our time. I really appreciate your time and, and conversation. It was so interesting. I hope everyone reads the book. It was super informative and, and look forward to watching what comes from here. Thank Thanks you. so much for having me. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 